And as you're turning to 2 Kings 5, I want to make a quick little, uh, just to clarify. Uh, when you're reading Old Testament, uh, a couple things remember. Uh, number one, uh, you need to understand that. We need to understand at first how these people understood it, correct? So they don't see everything that we see because we have the New Testament. So when we read this, we've got to understand what does this mean to people who were in this time and this time frame then, right? What does this mean? Um, how do we understand what's going on? Then as we go, we get to read it through the lens of the New Testament, through the lens of Christ. So as we walk through this whole chapter, so if you got a, if you got somewhere to be today, I'll probably just preach probably about an hour and a half, so it should be very long. Uh, so the whole chapter. So if you guys got your Bible, Second uh, Kings chapter 5, read the whole thing, we'll pray, and then uh, we'll go ahead and start. So let's, let's start. Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master and in high favor, because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. Now the Syrians on one of their raids had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel, and she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, Would that my lord were there with the prophet who is in Samaria. He would cure him of his leprosy. So Naaman went in and told his lord, Thus and so spoke the girl from the land of Israel. And the king of Syria said, Go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So he went, taking with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten changes of clothing. And he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which read, When this letter reaches you, Know that I have sent to you Naaman, my servant, that you may cure him of his leprosy. When the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and make alive, that this man sends word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? Only consider and see how he is seeking a quarrel with me. Verse 8. When Elijah the man of God heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he sent to the king, saying, why have you torn your clothes? Let him come now to me that he may know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and chariots and stood at the door of Elisha's house. And Elisha sent a messenger to him saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored and you shall be clean. But Naaman was angry and went away saying, Behold, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. But his servants came near and said to him, My father, it is a great word the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? Has he actually said, Wash and be clean? So he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God. And his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. Then he returned to the man of God, he and all his company, and he came and stood before him. And he said, Behold, I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. So accept now a present from your servant. But he said, As the Lord lives before whom I stand, I will receive none. And he urged him to take it, but he refused. Verse 17. Then Naaman said, If not, please let there be given to your servant two mule loads of earth. For from now on your servant will not offer burnt offerings or sacrifice to any God but the Lord. In this matter, may the Lord pardon your servant when my master goes into the house of Rimmon to worship there, leaning on my arm, and I bow myself in the house of Rimmon. When I bow myself in the house of Rimmon, the Lord pardon your servant in this matter. He said to him, Go in peace. But when Naaman had gone from a short distance, 
Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, the man of God, said, See, my master spared this name in the Syrian, and not accepting from him his hand what he brought. As the Lord lives, I will run after him and get something from him. So Gehazi followed Naaman, and when Naaman saw someone running after him, he got down from the chariot to meet him and said, Is all well? And he said, All is well. My master sent me to say, There have just now come to me from the hill country of Ephraim two young men of the sons of the prophets. Please give them a town of silver and two changes of clothing. And Naaman said, Be pleased to accept two talents. And he urged him and tied the two talents of silver and the two bags with two changes of clothing and laid them on two of his servants. And they carried them before Gehazi. And when he came to the hill, he took them from their hand and put them in the house, and he sent the men away, and they departed. 25. He went in and stood before his master. And Elisha said to him, Where have you been, Gehazi? And he said, Your servant went nowhere. But he said to him, Did not my heart go when the man turned from his chariot to meet you? Was it a time to accept money and garments, olive orchards and vineyards, sheep, oxen, male servants, and female servants? Therefore... The leprosy of Naaman shall cling to you and to your descendants forever. So he went out from his presence a leper like snow. There's a lot there, so let's pray and let's ask for the Lord's help. Father, we trust you. Lord, we, uh, we, we, we love your word. We are a people of the book. God, help us to submit to your word. God, I pray that you'd open our hearts to not be like Naaman. God, help us to know that we are Naaman. Lord, help us to refrain from our pride and from our sin. We ask that you would humble us, that you would open our hearts to believe, that we would see the glory of Christ in this text today. See your sons, and we pray. Amen. I want to start real quick with a story uh, about myself. I personally hate that, I'll be honest with you. I hate talking about how I did something funny or great because I'm just so awkward as it is. Uh, this was not really about me. Um, I work at a courthouse in Marion. And uh, there's a lot of interns that work there who are typically high school age. And as you probably imagine, I have to bother them because I'm a Christian. So yes, I'm going to ask you where you go to church at. Are you a Christian? Whatever. And I learned on Thursday, last Thursday, that one of them goes to uh, OLMC. It's a Catholic church in Heron. And that next Friday morning, I, I was oh, that's cool, great, Catholic church. You know, I'm, I'm not going to go there. We'll, we'll say that for next time. And that next Friday morning, uh, I saw that the police captured a man who robbed that church. I think it was a Tuesday before that he stole some really expensive guitar and stole some like a laptop or something like that. And the police caught him that morning. So I said, well, shoot, I know what's going to be my way to talk to her about the gospel is about this. Someone rob your church. It's a very good doorway to get into the gospel, I think. Uh, and so I asked her just, you know, hey, did you hear about this? And she said, yes, I did. And and so I said, so how long have you been to church? Just a small conversation about church life and what you believe and stuff like that. So I said, and, and I, I'll give you the conversation almost verbatim because I can't remember everything that I said, but it's pretty similar to this. And I asked her, should I become a Catholic? And her name's not Sarah, but we'll call her Sarah. And Sarah said this, and this is probably word for word, as long as you believe in God and you are a good person, you will go to heaven. And so I said, oh, in my head thinking, okay, well, that's not right. Let's make sure I heard it right. I don't want to give her the benefit of just, you're wrong. So I asked her, help me understand. You're saying it doesn't matter if you're a Muslim or who, been Hindu or Buddhist or whatever. It doesn't matter as long as you're good. And she confirmed and said, yes, that's correct. 
Sadly, this is not a uncommon belief, which is sad. Uh, we think good people go to heaven, people who are really kind go to heaven, those who aren't that bad go to heaven. Today, we're going to walk through a story which is the exact opposite of that. That Naaman, who's a really bad guy, goes to heaven. He's a really bad guy. And it's, it's just, we don't think that way. And the Bible is constantly against your thinking, saying, you've got to understand that it's just incorrect. There's a really good God who saves really bad people. And that's what we're going to see today. So we're going to start as we walk through it. We're going to see some highlights of God's character at work in the life of Naaman. And at the end, we'll see that there is great mercy reserved for really great sinners. So let's start. Verse 1. We get a picture of who this guy is named Naaman. Uh, if you have kids on the way, I know Casey's expecting a couple. Uh, Naaman's not been taken yet. So if you want some kids' names, that's a very common one, I think, here. So the commander of the army, his name is Naaman. He's a Syrian of a wicked nation. So not Israel, so a, a pagan nation, as we'd call them. Uh, in 1 Samuel chapter 12, we can understand that a commander of an army is the highest rank. So he's the chief of, of the, the military. They follow his rules. He says, go, you go. He says, fight, you fight, right? He's a great man in high favor. So Naaman was a great man. Simple. He was a great guy. Uh, high social standing. He was a man's man. So, I mean, he, he's the man. It's Naaman. You know who Naaman is. He's the dude. He's Naaman. He's, he's Naaman. Everyone likes Naaman. He's cool. He's a big man on campus. Even the president, the king of their country, loved Naaman. He knew him well by name. If you lived in Syria, you knew who he was. You probably had his face on your t-shirt. You just, everyone knew Naaman. You had a poster on the wall. You, you loved this man. If you lived there, you understood who he was. It says he was a mighty man of valor in verse 1. Uh, in Ruth chapter 2 and in Judges 6, the same word in Hebrew, which I just cheated to look it up, um, means great, a great warrior and one of great wealth. So you have this stud who just, in case you didn't know, how do you get really high in military in these times? You're really good at killing people. You're, just, you're really good. So Naaman is just this, a stud. Everyone loves him. He's a great man. He's got a lot of money. So Naaman is everything you would hope for to be, in a sense, that you want to be. He's the best job. The, the country loves him. He's the celebrity. He's famous. Women want to be with him. Men want to be him. That's Naaman. If you look at verse 1, there's a very strange transition in the sentence. Look at verse 1. But he was a leper. Not a leopard, a leper, right? Not like a, like a zoo, but a leper. All of his greatness, all of his power, all of his pomp, all of his, look at me, was changed by saying he was a leper. It's, it's that one thing that he has not going for him, is leprosy. Everything in the world of Mr. Worldly Wisely, as John Bundy would say it, was going for him. But Naaman was spiritually and physically unclean. He was likely to die of this disease. Leprosy was not pretty. It was very gross. Your fingers would deteriorate. Your body would kind of fall apart. It's gross. Everyone who saw him saw this problem. Notice also in verse 1 a very interesting phrase. A lot of people ask, uh, what was God doing with other nations? So we see God is specifically, I am the God of the Old Testament, the God of Israel, right? We see that. What was God doing with like the Syrians or the Canaanites? What was God doing? Look at verse 1. Because by him, the Lord had given victory to Syria. So what is God doing with other nations? Whatever he wants. He's a king. 
Naaman's a, a king of an army, but God's the king of the universe. So while people plot in vain, the Bible says, the Lord laughs. He does whatever he pleases. Uh, my political standing could be sent up in three words from Psalm 93. The Lord reigns. Amen. So the God of the Bible is the God of Africa, the God of North and South America, Europe, Asia, Australia, Israel, you name it. That's where he is. There's no nation under God that does not do what he commands. God is your God. He's the God of the heavens. He's the God of the universe. He works all things according to the counsel of his will, says Ephesians 1. There's not a king that does not fall into this verse. Proverbs 21, verse 1. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. Every king does God's bidding, even Naaman. Look at verses 2 and 3. We see the same God who orders the steps of nations. is even involved in very, very small things, even things that are confusing and even evil in some mysterious way. Look at verse 2 and 3. Naaman's army on one of their random raids captures and kidnaps some little girl. That's bad. Like kidnapping is bad. I think we can probably agree on that. It's bad. And they take her, and she ends up working for Naaman's wife. What does she do? She chirps up. Hey, Naaman, you're sick. I know a guy who can heal you. So even in God's providence, even in a random, what seemed like a random battle, a random capture, a random attack, and abducting a little girl, God's hand is at work. Friends, I think if we're a believer in this room, we need to stop talking like the world and stop saying things like chance. That was really random. Hopefully this will happen by, by, by my luck. Guys, God does not govern by luck. Thank God it's not just up to us. God governs the small things, the big things. When God moves, you move. When he decrees, it comes to pass. And there's some sense here in what, what they meant for evil by kidnapping a girl, which they did. God meant for good. So name would hear about healing Look at verses 4 and 5. We see what happens next. This little songbird chirps up, and she says, Hey, I know a guy who can heal you. Now, most of you guys are married in this room. Uh, do you know what pillow talk is? You guys ever do that? Sitting on your pillow and just chat up about your day, about your life? Can you imagine what this pillow talk was like this night with Naaman and his wife? Hey, Naaman, there's a guy who can heal you. He just, he just, he just a couple he's miles away. He can heal you. You're going to die. You can be healed. Can you imagine Naaman's heart just leapt for joy? This can be healed? This decaying body can be healed? So the king of Syria decides to help this prideful man who can be a healthy man. And look what he does. The king of Syria, verses 4 and 5, he says, I'll give you a letter of recommendation. Just go right ahead. I'll write you a letter. I'll stamp it, seal it. Take it there. And if you look what Naaman asked for, he asked for a lot of things. He asked for 10 talents of silver, which is apparently a lot, 6,000 shekels of gold and 10 chains of clothing. Um, I don't know a lot of things, but I know how to, how to read a commentary. And most commentaries say that the amount of money he took was the average of 600 men's average yearly income. So Naaman's got some dough with him and a letter. So this, this is a big deal. So the verses 6 and 7, the letter reaches the king with Naaman and his, his posse showing up with a huge request to heal Naaman of leprosy. And if you look, the king reacts in such a way that I think I would react. Look at verse 6 and 7 here. Naaman gets here. The king reads the letter, and what does he do? He just freaks out. 
Do you think I'm God? I can't cure this. Who do you you think that I am? He actually assumes it's a joke. If you look at verse 7, he's only seeking the quarrel. This is a joke. He wants to start a fight or something silly. I can't fight this guy. This is Naaman. So think about this man. Naaman comes with a seemingly impossible task. Kill me with cancer, essentially. Just take it away. And the king reacts in a very true, understanding way. Uh, Am I God to kill and make alive? Again, we see God's sovereignty first over the nations. And over small things about your daily life and even things that are evil, then you see now who can kill and make alive? God. The king knows one thing, that God is sovereign over your health. He can do what he wants. Now, God's kind. I don't think he enjoys it afflicting people the way that we would maybe want to say it. God doesn't take delight in those things, but he is over it. So even over Naaman's leprosy, God is sovereign over that. From planet to person to a proton, God orders your life, friend. Deuteronomy 32 says this, See now that I, I am he, and there is no God beside me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal. And there's none that can deliver out of my hand. So God is over the nations. He's over small things and over your health. Look at verse 8 through 12. This is where the story gets interesting. We see a tension begins to rise as we see Elijah's real problem. So the king tears his clothes, which is a sign of expressing an inward feeling. So if you get so just outraged, you just want to like rip something, right? That's what he does. He rips his shirt to say, not not like I'm Superman, but to say, I'm so angry. I I can't do this. How could you ask me to heal somebody? Verses 8 through 12, we see Naaman's real problem is pride. Again, the word but is used first with but he was a leper. And now we see but when Elijah, the man of God, heard, kind of saves the day a little bit. Look what he says. He says, send him to me. So with bad news, we see this juxtaposition with the word but to change the transition. So Elijah is saying, yes, you cannot heal him. I know someone who can. Verse 9, we see Naaman probably literally comes on his high horse, I would assume to imagine. He comes with all of his horses and chariots. His motorcade comes. Now, if, if, you, if you remember the story, this is super important. I want you to understand. If you understand who Naaman is, this story will just make you realize why this is such a huge deal. So you see a great man. You don't touch Naaman. You don't tell him what to do. He's in charge. You touch me, I can wipe you out. My, nation, my army will slaughter you. I mean, he leads raids to like just slaughters people. He's a great man and people love him. Celebrity status. Tons of money. He has a wife. Women love him anyway. Men want to be him. Naaman. And what happens? He even goes to the king himself and says, here's the letter. So even the king of Israel respects this man. I have to imagine Naaman does not get turned down for anything. What do you think about that? He gets what he wants. He kicks down doors and gets it. And he comes to Elijah, and look what happened. Look at verse 10. And Elijah sent a messenger to him, saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored, and you shall be clean. This is great news, is it not? Naaman, you can be healed. Go in that nasty river and just go take a swim for a few minutes. A great man with a great gift, with a letter from a great king, arrives at Elijah's front porch with a great army. He doesn't even see Elijah. He sees a servant. 
I mean, guys, Donald Trump just came recently, like this like yesterday, to Murfreesboro for reasons I don't understand. What if the Queen of England came to D.C.? She just came. And instead of the president going out there, he sends like the custodian. president says, hello. He says, good afternoon. He'll see you for lunch at Panera at 12. We think she would do. Who do you think you are? But I think rightly what Naaman's probably thinking, who do you think I am? You think I'm some peasant boy? I'm Naaman the Great. Let's see why he's mad. First, he's Naaman the Great. You don't mess with Naaman. Number two, I want to see why also Naaman is angry. Look at the cure that he receives. Look at his expression of why he's so mad. Naaman rode for miles to come to this cure. Can you imagine the talks he had on the way there with his men? What's he going to do? What do you guys think? Is he going to like cast a spell on me or something? Is he going like to get a stick and smack him with it? I don't know. Throw me in a vat? I don't know. Like, what's he going to do? Maybe fire will come down. Instead, Naaman's ideal cure to him is humiliating. I have to act like a hippopotamus and bob up and down seven times in the water. I'm Naaman. How dare you talk to me that way? And he doesn't even get Elijah. He gets a servant. He gets a custodian to tell him this. So think about how angry he must be. A great man deserves a great cure after all. Look at verse 12. Look at Naaman's response. I love how brutally honest the Bible is about what Naaman actually says. Verse 11, I thought he would surely come out to me. He would come out to me. Call upon the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over some place. So like some kind of incantation. Do something cool, Elisha. Look at verse 12. Are not Abana and far part of the rivers of Damascus better than all these waters? So what's Naaman's problem? It's not what I want. I don't want that cure. I want it my way. Do you sense a little bit of pride in Naaman's voice? Friends, I wonder if when we first hear the gospel, if we think the same. That's how I get saved. That, that naked guy on a cross. The world will scoff at the Bible. It doesn't meet our needs. Pride says, you submit to me. I don't care how good it is. I don't want it that way. That's pride. Look at verses 13 and 14. We see the response of Naaman that's edited after. Friends, friends are really good to have. Naaman's friends literally saved his life just now. If you read 13 to 14, his servants came near and said to him, My father, it is a great word the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? Has he actually said to you, wash and be clean? Name, you could be cured. We didn't come this way for nothing. Well, you just go do it. This is a great truth. You can be cured. Would you really turn that down? He amazingly said to you, wash and be clean. Verse 14, Naaman repents. He turns and says, you know what? Okay, I'll do it. Now, I don't want to assume Naaman's response. The Bible doesn't say this. It's conjecture. I don't want to assume Naaman was kind of like, sure, I'll do it. But also, I don't want to assume he's kind of like, whatever, Elijah. So I don't want to give either or. But I want to say it was probably middle ground. Probably like, you know what? He says do it. I think it's silly, but I'll do it. I'll trust this Elijah. And I imagine just picturing Naaman going, one, Two, still a leopard. <laughs> still a leper. Three, bobbing up and down. And then what happens? I love how the Bible words this. Look at what it says in verse 14 after he bobs up and down. According to the word of the man of God. 
They might as well say according to the Bible. It's pretty darn close. According to the word of the man of God, his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. Naaman's leprosy is gone. What was going to kill him has been cleansed. His skin probably looks very similar to the girl he kidnapped, quite frankly. Pure, good, fresh, restored. Verses 15 through 18, we see the response of a changed man to God who's been healed and rescued from certain death. Look at verse 15. Then he returned to the man of God. He hated all his company. He came and stood before him and he said, Behold, I know that there is no God in all the earth but Israel. Yes and amen, Naaman, you nailed it. That is good. That's a good response. In his gratitude, he comes back and actually offers Elijah money. It's kind of like a... It's kind of just, I want to express my gratitude for you now. We'll, we'll get to that, but I want to make one comment. Um, and th- this is pastor's fault. So this is not uh, Christianity's fault as a whole, though I think we can group it in there. But many pastors, and so this is my fault as well, we don't clarify what salvation actually is. So let me, let me explain. We, we will say, if you confess that you are a bad person and you pray this prayer, you're in. It's like a flu shot. You got it? See ya. That's not the gospel. The gospel requires repentance and faith. And I do believe if you pray to Christ and that he will save you. But it's not just a little magical Harry Potter prayer. You just throw up in the air and you're saved. Naaman expresses a real change. The Bible, if you look where he went from the Jordan River to Samaria, if you look in your, in your Bible map, it's like 25 miles. It's a real turn. If it was... Fake? He'd been like, you know what? Two miles, that's far enough. Naaman's fine. I don't want to go that far. He goes 25 miles to tell this guy, thank you. I think it's a real response. Real faith endures. It's real. It responds and goes the distance. It's a real repentance and faith. He rejects what he wanted to do and goes to Elisha. Now, it was a common practice, so why did, why did he turn down money? Is that not a a form of like tithing it's not so tithing's still good okay what this was is in pagan culture you would offer money for healing you would say hey all my sins forgiven here's 25 bucks priest would say great come here or you want to talk to god it's 10 bucks talk to small g god right so nate i think elijah is making very clear salvation is free you just come you come as a leper and you get healed and God will heal you. That's what he's trying to make very clear. He, is not he, he does not want to be placed into that camp of pagan practice. Yahweh does not meet you by your greatness, by your wealth or strength, but by faith. No matter how small or how frail, God meets with sinners. Look at verse 17 and 18. It, it's a, if you read it, it's very strange. Naaman essentially says, can I have some dirt? Just want some of your soil. Why does he do that? What do you guys think? So here's, um, there's two possible answers. Um, I have no idea what it means. I'll, I'll be, I, I don't know what it means. There's two main kind of answers, and I'll give them to you. Um, I lean more towards the first one, but I could be wrong, and I'll see. It will, we'll see why it's okay that we're not 100% sure. We'll see why. So response number one, uh, in the Old Testament, God uses the phrase a lot, like holy ground, right? Like this is holy ground. Take your sandals off, Moses, right? Um, God speaks of the promised land, correct? So it's very geographic in God's context. 
And what it means is you, you identify with the God you worship by where you worship at. Does that make sense? So if you're in Israel, that land is where God dwells, correct? That's the understanding of, of what God would kind of explain what they would believe. So perhaps Naaman's saying, I'm going to take this dirt with me in the temple and I worship and say, though I'm in a pagan temple, I worship the God of Israel. So some people would say, maybe he laid it on, on the floor and would like kneel on it. So he would say, my feet won't touch that dirt. I want to be on Israel's dirt. Kind of like a, a response of faith. Does that make sense? So that's one possible understanding. I, I think that sounds legit. Outwardly bowing to, uh, he's bowing in a temple, in, inwardly bowing to Yahweh. Uh, possible answer number two is found in Exodus chapter 20. Uh, God gives a command about how to build an altar outside the temple, and he says, make it out of earth. So could Elijah have made like an, a temp, or an altar in the temple? Sure, why not? I think it's legit, right? So both, both are there. Um, however you want to see that's fine. I don't think we're in danger of erring because look what Elijah says. So he asks this weird response. What does Elijah say? Yeah, go in peace, that's fine. So what, whatever it means, it wasn't sinful. If it was, he would say, no, you can't do that. That's a stupid idea. Why would you want to do that? So I think Elijah's resp- or his response is saying, what you're doing is not sin. Yes, go do that. Do you see that? This is how we know he's converted. Christians have a very sensitive conscience. God, I don't want to sin against you. I do not want to blaspheme your name when I go to work. I don't want to make you look bad. I want to honor you wherever I go. And that's what he's doing. Go in peace. And now we see, as we close the story, a very, very sad ending to the story. Verses 19 to the end talk about when Naaman's, I'm sorry, not when Naaman's, we see when Elisha's servants compromise. So if you go to 2 Kings chapter 4, you don't got to go there. You just flip to, to look at the headings in your Bible. They have headings usually. Elisha raises a dead woman's, or a woman's dead son to life. And guess who was there to see? Gehazi was there. So he knows Elijah's a pretty big deal. Matter of fact, he knows Yahweh's a big deal. He knows God can heal and God can read people to life who are dead. He sees that. He was there for that miracle. He knows the power of God and his greatness and his splendor. He knows Elijah's love for the Lord and what he does. And then we see the real side of Gehazi come out. If you look at the story, I'll sum it for you as quick as I can because it is kind of a long reading. Essentially, he runs down to chase Naaman and says, You know what? Elisha, you didn't take any money. First come, first serve. So he chases down Naaman and says, A lie. Hey, Naaman has some, or Elisha has some guys here who need some clothes and some money. Can you just chip some money out? And what does gentle, kind Naaman now do? Yeah, sure. Do you see the heart change of Naaman again? This great man. Then he goes, People don't even know? Yeah, I'll help them. I would love to give to them. Isn't that weird? But he runs. He asks for these things. He lies to Naaman. Naaman has no idea what's going on. He goes, sure, I'll give to you. That's fine. If you read, he actually gives them more than he asked for. He asked for one talent each. He gives them two. So he's being generous and says, here's two. Take two. And if you read, depending on your Bible translation, I think the NIV or the NLT, one of those, says it really well. But the word for what he does, if you, if you read, he runs back in his house in verse 24, it says he put them in the house. Some translations actually read he stashed them or stowed them away. So he hid it. 
So he hides what he knew was wrong. He stole. He lied. He lies about it soon and hides it. Friends, sin does not end where it starts. It never does. If you're in deep, turn from your sin now. You're going to be found out. It's going to get you. It's crashing at the door and it bites. We see verse 25. I was talking to Hank yesterday about this text. And just, the Bible has a sense of humor without doing it on purpose, I think. It makes you want to laugh. Look at verse 25. I'm sorry, verse 20. Yeah, 25. He went in, Gehazi, and stood before his master. And Elijah said to him, Where have you been, Gehazi? And he says, Nowhere. You liar. You lied again. You just, Nowhere. I've been here the whole time. I'm just hanging out. What does Elijah say? Did not my heart go when the man turned from his chariot to meet you? In other words, either he had some kind of vision, he saw in a dream maybe, God just revealed to him, however it happened, he knows what he's doing. Elijah said, you will not lie. You will be found out. Your sin is not fun. Was it not time to accept money and garments? So if you look, he goes after all of Orchard and Vineyards. What he's trying to say is, you've got money to buy stuff. You stole to buy things for yourself. That's not what this miracle is about. Look at the sad end of the story. Therefore, the leprosy of Naaman shall cling to you and your descendants forever. So he went away from his presence like a leper, like snow. So he went for Naaman's cash. He came out with Naaman's cancer. This is a fool. He went for Naaman's stuff. He came back damned, essentially. You're going to die. And if you look even in, in, in the story further, the next few chapters, he's still there. God is still there. But he's going to die real slow, gross death. The love of money is the root of many, many evil, many evil things. It really is. And we see that here. So now, how do we take this story? What does, what does this mean for me? What is a story about a really great man and leprosy in the river have to do with me? Because this, this is just, it's cool, but what's that have to do with kale? How does this, this change my heart to love Christ more? This is where we ought to understand what Jesus talks about in the Gospel of Luke, where he says, everything is about me. It's all about me. The whole Bible, it's about me somehow. So we're going to see four truths about the Gospel of Christ in this text. Number one, the sovereignty of God. God is sovereign in all of your life, even in the lives of evil people. He, he, he just, he's in charge. He's the God of the globe. He directs everything from its path, from nations to battles to wars, even the oil prices in the Middle East, something small like that. He governs it. And yet men sin a lot. God does not cause people to sin. We sin. And yet God wills all that comes to pass. There's no answer to that. That's about as far as we can get in the Bible. But God rules perfectly and well all the time. In him we've obtained an inheritance, have been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. And we see this in Naaman's life, from his conquest to his greatness, to his victory, to his skills. Everything you have, 1 Samuel 2 says, is from the Lord, rich or poor. Everything you have. Even to people who are rejecting God. God's kindness gives you everything you have. If your breath you breathe is a gift. And from the book of Job, we see that even your illnesses and tragedies come from the Lord somehow. 
Could, could we not think that maybe Naaman's leprosy was not random? Maybe he just happened to come at that time. And he just happened to hear about this little girl. Friends, your life is governed by providence. Very kind providence. He would appoint this wicked man to do a wicked thing that he might obtain a girl who would tell him about healing. Christian, even your hurts and your infirmities and diseases are governed by God for your good and his glory. And you may never see it. You'll see it now or you'll see it before his throne. But he's really good at what he's doing. You can trust him. Your pain is not meaningless. As hard as it is, it's not meaningless. God's counsel is very, very good. The nature of man, number two. We see over and over in this text, Naaman thought he was the bomb, essentially. He expresses his unbelief and his pride. Romans chapter 3 says this, There's no one good, not even one. Nobody seeks for God. There's no fear of God before their eyes. This is the nature of all men under the universe in in the world. There's no fear of God. We don't seek God. We love us. The human condition is a dreadfully miserable one. We really believe that we are great, that we are glorious, that we rule what we have in our hands. We should be looked at. Does not the fact that people, and this is something that the news flushes out. If you've watched the news, when someone, this is a sad story, but people die all the time doing really dumb stuff. And I mean that as kind as I can. People feel themselves doing crazy jumps off of cliffs. Just take it a cool picture of it. So they'll get like Instagram or YouTube famous. We just want to be looked at. Look at what I did. We, we, we love pride. We, just, we love it. It's easy. We love praise. We see the same lie in Genesis 3 that you can be like God, flush out every single day. You can be looked at. People can love you too. You're something. You're the best thing in the whole world. Naaman literally came up on a high horse, loved the praise of man, wanted to be looked at, in a willful rebellion to God. Friends, all of us are born with a leprosy like Naaman. But it's not physical. It is spiritual. You are born a spiritually, desperately sick leper. Your heart before God is terribly unclean. It's ugly. And your leprosy is pride. We, like Naaman, when we first heard the gospel, rejected it because it did not match our needs. Friends, Think of how many times, Kurt has told me multiple times, he heard the gospel preached to him so many times. He just rejected it. Because, he, no, that does not meet my standard. I am Naaman. Should not be that shameful. What does the Bible say about the gospel? For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved is the, is the power of God. The message of a naked, weak God-man dying on the cross in the place of sinners and taking their wrath is just scoff-worthy to the world. That's your hope, a naked guy on a cross. The beautiful, terrible crosses we'll sing about today. And we too, prior to being crushed, were the exact same way. We should not scoff at Naaman. Guys, we are Naaman. That's the story's about you and I being that bad. But does it end there? Does it? Number three, the death of the Son of God, the good news of Christ, is that those who have acknowledged that they are spiritual lepers can be saved. (laughs) You are really bad. And the gospel is only really good if you know you are really, really bad. Jesus came to call not the righteous, but who? Sinners. 
Those who are well do not need a physician. Those who are sick. Friend, you are sick. The reality of the cross not only reveals God's great love, but our great problem, me. There's a hymn that uh, says this. I think oftentimes we don't think our pride's that bad, our sin's that bad. I want to read you the words of a hymn. Ye who think of sin but lightly, nor suppose the evil great, here may view its nature rightly, here is guilt may estimate. Mark the sacrifice appointed, see who bears the awful load. Tis the word, the Lord's anointed, son of man and son of God. Our sin was so bad, God had to die. The Lord's anointed had to die. That's how bad our pride is, friends. And like Elijah, God sends a man of God, but not just a man of God. He sends the God-man. We don't just get some guy. We get Christ. We get the king of kings to die for rebels. God came to die in the place of men who think they're God. That's the good news of the gospel is Jesus came not to be served, though he could be and should be and is the king. Like Naaman, he's the best of the best. The king. What did he come to do? To be low. To serve. He, the theme of heaven's praises, clothed in frail humanity. Jesus humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. Friends, your cleansing of spiritual leprosy is found beneath the bloody crimson flow of Jesus' blood. Dunk yourself. By faith, turn to that blood. That is your only hope. Jesus came to make spiritual lepers well, make the spiritually dead live, the spiritually blind see and enjoy God. Jesus loves sinners. He really does. He's called the friend of sinners for a reason. He loves them. He's very good at saving them. He saved great men, great evil men like Saul of Tarsus, Naaman of Syria, and Caleb of California. If you're in Christ, he saved a really wicked guy like me. That's how good he is. And like Naaman, in Christ, your entire soul is cleansed like the flesh of a little child. I love that text, man. Wash and be clean. It's gone. This is what we call in the Bible justification. God can now look at you and declare your guilt gone. Not because of you, but because of Christ. So I want to illustrate real quickly, then we'll move on to the fourth point. When God looks at you, he sees you like Naaman. You're really bad. You're sick. You're sinful. But in Christ, by faith, God can look at you almost like through the lens of Jesus and see you as a perfectly obeying man, as if you've always obeyed. Is that not amazing? You who think of sin but lightly... Guys, we don't think our sin is that bad. I don't. I do, but a lot of times I don't. But Jesus now is my righteousness. He who knew no sin became sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We are perfect in Christ, cleansed like the flesh of a child. Number four, and lastly, repentance and faith. How do you respond to this good news? What do you do? How do you respond? Jesus preached in Mark 1.15, Repent and believe the gospel. God commands all men everywhere to repent, which means to turn from your sins, to say, God, I am not worthy. I'm not good. I'm not kind. I am bad. To turn from your sins and to turn to Christ, to trust and put your faith, your trust in Christ as your only hope that he bore the wrath reserved for you. That's how you respond to the good news. And if you're already in Christ, you turn every single day. God, I need your blood to cleanse my pride. I really think I'm something. I should be Twitter famous for crying out loud. I have good thoughts. That's what we think. I should be adored. 
Wonder how many kids got me on their wall at home on, on a poster. Guys, we're not that spanky. Not, and that word's weird. We're not spanky at all. Mark 10, 15, Jesus says this, Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter. What does that mean? It means humility. God, I have to turn to you. I am in deep danger. Simple trust and obedience to the gospel. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. You're called to respond to the gospel every single day in repentance and faith. And if you turn from your sins now, Christ will save you. Name displayed true faith. He forsook his pride. He delighted to know that God, Christian, your soul is free. You can enjoy the God of mercy who is now your father, not your judge. Isn't that good news? He's your, he's your, he's your dad, your father, who loves you. And Jesus is your brother. He is not ashamed to call us brothers, as Hebrews 2. There is a real sinful fear, however, I think, in, if you're a believer in this room. God, I don't want to be like Gehazi. He was so, and I mean this in the most biblical way, he was so close to God. I mean, he saw a dead person come to life. So close. What did he do? He just turned from it. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Respond to the gospel. What did he do? I think he did what Jesus said in Mark 8. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Guys, it's, sin is just not worth it. It's just really foolish. We must repent and believe the gospel. Our assurance is not found in our repenting, however. Though Christians are a re- repenting people, our assurance is found in the great, sovereign, kind God of mercy who loved me and gave himself for me. Jesus is our sure and steady anchor. He will not be moved. Trust and believe the gospel. Christ, he's your life. Let's pray. Jesus, we love you. You are our king. You are our God. You are our only hope. We thank you for the blood you shed for us and for your life and death that gives us life after death. Jesus, we praise you. Help us to humble ourselves from our sins, to turn from our sins and trust in Christ, trust in you and to save us from our, our sins and from your wrath. In your sins let me pray. Amen.